Good morning. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. And I hope if you're here for the first time or if you've been visiting for a couple of weeks that we get to meet each other. You can stick around for coffee after the service. I've got some instructions later on for what to say over coffee, so just pay attention, all right? Today we are continuing in our summer series in the book of Psalms. Anne Lamott describes three main kinds of prayer that exist. She does that in the title of one of her books, which is Help, Thanks, Wow. It's that simple, she suggests. Sometimes we make prayer complicated. We feel like we have to do it just right. But Anne Lamott says the prayer is taking the chance that against all odds in past history, we are loved and chosen. We just sang about that. And that we don't have to get it all together before we show up. Now the Psalms, every one of them, are prayers. Even if some of them may seem strange to us, not like any kind of prayer we would pray naturally. And the Psalms are about showing up for sure. They're a step of faith towards God. And they're kind of a risk in a way. By praying, you're taking a risk. You're approaching God, and you don't know what the outcome will be. We're going to look this morning at a Psalm of Lament. The dictionary defines lament as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. I think Christians have a reputation in our culture, and it's not for lament. For some people, maybe for many people, we are shiny, happy Christians with fake smiles on our faces. You can think of the ultimate shiny, happy Christian of all time, Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, North America's longest-running sitcom. I think they're up to 663 episodes now. Apparently, Ned is the most famous evangelical Christian in North America. He's always cheerful. He's always nice. He always pays his bills on time. And he's known for these catchphrases like Oakley Dokley, which would be fun if you could work it in over coffee after the service. Ned's character was created to be, and I quote, so cloyingly perfect as to annoy and shame the Simpsons and their dysfunctional family. But you know, that stereotype, and I do think it's out there, that stereotype of Christians really doesn't hold up against Scripture. The Bible is full of believers whose lives are a complete mess. Last week we looked at a psalm of praise, but there are almost as many psalms of lament in the Bible as there are psalms of praise. By some counts, there are even more. Whatever your criteria for deciding what constitutes a psalm of lament, roughly a third of the 150 psalms in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament are lament. And we're going to read one of them in a moment. We're going to read Psalm 142. But first, let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you lead us into all truth today? Come and wrestle with us in our sorrows and show us 
even with a glimmer of light, that we are more loved by the Father than we could ever have imagined. Guide us on the way that leads to you. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. So reading Psalm 142. One of the nice things about how big the book of Psalms is, is that even if you're not too familiar with the Bible as it comes in book form, right in the middle, almost always, you'll find the Psalms. Well, always. It's always in the middle. (laughs) But sometimes you open it, you try to get to the middle, you don't quite get there. So you end up in Ecclesiastes, and that can get ugly in a hurry. We're going to read Psalm 142. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there's no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me, because of your goodness to me. This is the word of the Lord. A few years ago, I was sitting at my desk here in the church when the phone rang. It was a man who immediately asked if I would pray for him, if I would pray with him. He didn't give me his name, I asked, but he didn't want to give me his name. He told me that he felt utterly and completely alone, that he had no friends, that all his friends had abandoned him or they had betrayed him, and that no one cared for him. He said he had nothing to live for. And so I prayed for him. I did what he asked. And when I finished my prayer, through the phone, I heard him weeping. And I didn't know what to say. I don't know if you're like me, but when someone cries, what you want is to help, right? But you don't know what to say often. And so there was silence. And then I asked him, Do you believe that God is with you? And he paused. And then he said, yes. Yes, I do. I think I do. I'm in a dark place right now, but I can still see some light. And then he just hung up. I can tell you it was hard to go back to my email after that. There are a lot of people in our world who are hurting. There are a lot of people in this room who are hurting. And there are a few things more powerful than when you hear the cry of someone's heart. Because we don't usually get that honest with each other, do we? Maybe you personally have never gone through something like that, what sometimes we call a dark night of the soul. But I think whether we're older or younger, we've all got our sorrows. 
As the old African-American spiritual puts it, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. And if you like Louis Armstrong, he does just the best version of that. Go home, listen to it on YouTube. But it's true, isn't it? We feel alone when we are in pain, when we are grieving. And not even the closest friend can meet us in that deep place of sorrow. And we can find that we get lost in the darkness. Maybe that's why these psalms of lament have such a careful structure to them. They're like a map. They have signals and signs that lead us through lament. And we're going to follow the structure of this psalm this morning as we see that lament is the biblical God-given way for us to deal with life's suffering and grief. Lament starts always with an address to God. He wants us to be honest with him, to let him know directly when we're in trouble. The second thing is that a lament presents the problem. It lays it out. Here it's David's conflict with King Saul and the isolation he's ended up in. Finally, a lament points the way to deliverance with a request of God and the expression of trust. The address, the problem, the deliverance. Psalm 142 starts on a personal note. The psalmist writes, I cry aloud to the Lord. No small talk, no preamble, no explanation. It's just me and my voice. In the Hebrew, it literally says, my voice, Yahweh. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. There's some connection here between speaking out loud, between taking thoughts and feelings, translating them into words that we then say, that we make a commitment to expressing to God by saying them. And that's not always easy to do. I think we'd rather let those emotions, those thoughts remain silent. We'd rather deny that we're in trouble at all. But we often wander from God when we do that. Even when we're in severe difficulty, we may not turn to him for different reasons. We keep it inside and we go through the motions of our lives. Or we may refuse to pray because we're angry or we've grown cynical. We don't feel God's presence at all anymore. There may have been a long period of silence before this psalm even began. I think there probably was. If you go to 1 Samuel chapter 22, it tells the story of how David ended up in this cave. I think he was there for a while, even though his time in the cave is written up in one verse. Here in the psalm, we get a glimpse of what he was going through. The first step back to life is always to speak to God, no matter what we have to say, no matter how we feel uncertain, doubtful, strange about praying. The Psalms can actually give us a voice when we've been silent for a long time. And once we've decided to say something to God, the next question is, are you going to be honest with God? Here in Psalm 142, 
David says, I pour out my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. Can you do that with God? Can you share your pain with God? And complaint here doesn't mean grumbling and whining. What it means is actually, in a concerted way, sharing with God, describing what you're feeling, what you're going through. Or maybe you assume that all God wants to hear from us is praise. All God wants to hear what most of the songs we sing on Sunday morning are like. That the only acceptable way to relate to God is by trusting and obeying Him. And if you can't do that, well then why bother speaking to Him at all? If you feel that way, you need to learn the language of lament. Let me say it again. Lament is the biblical, God-given way for us to deal with life's suffering and grief. The world's way is through distraction and denial. It's by pretending we're okay and escaping however we may choose to do that. Sometimes I wonder if the church is in denial too. It can be really hard to find worship music that laments. Justin and I have talked about this a fair bit. And in a way that's right, that's proper. Of course, every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. He is risen. Oh, look at that. Easter wasn't so long ago, was it? He is risen, and of course, we want to celebrate that. We want the joy and the victory of the Christian life. We want upbeat music. Except, we don't always feel joyful or victorious. We don't always see that in our lives. Walter Brueggemann, one of the best scholars of the Psalms, says that as Christians we seek to go from strength to strength, from victory to victory. But such a way not only ignores the Psalms, it's also a lie in terms of our own experience. Much Christian piety and spirituality is romantic and unreal in its positiveness. But Jesus is a man acquainted with sorrow. He wept with those who mourned, and he still weeps with us today. And it's interesting that Good Friday might be the one worship service of the year where we truly lament. And every year, I get more comments from you about the Good Friday service, about how meaningful it is to you, than about any other service. To come back to that African-American spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, except for Jesus. So the address to God comes first. Next, we have to get into the problem. And that isn't an easy thing for us to do. All of us have sadness and heartache in our lives, but we don't talk about it. Imagine with me you're having coffee after the service. What's the right answer? What's the only acceptable answer when someone over coffee asks you the question? How are you? Fine, good. Oakley dokley. Try it, see how that goes over. I counted the number of times people asked me this morning, How are you doing? How are you? How's it going? Eight times. And you know, the funny thing is, most of the time, 
when people asked that to me this morning, they were walking right past me. <laughs> so, I mean, it's this bizarre ritual we engage in, right? How's it going, Russ? <laughs> I mean, you don't even wait for an answer. You don't, in a way, you don't want an answer. That would be the last thing you expect if somebody actually told you the truth about how they're feeling, about how their life is. Do you know what this little word fine means? I had to look it up. It describes something of high quality. Some synonyms are excellent, great, exceptional, outstanding, superior, splendid, magnificent, beautiful, exquisite, choice, select, prime, supreme, superb, wonderful. Try answering that way the next time someone asks you how you're doing. Are you still fine? I doubt it. I probably ruined coffee hour for you now, didn't I? Like, you're going to be exerting every effort to not ask someone, how's it going? You know what you could do? You could ask them, how's that coffee? That's very safe. What are you planning to do later on today? There was a guy at my old church in Toronto who would ask people that question, how are you? And then when you said fine or good, he'd get this intense look on his face. Kind of a frown meets a scary curiosity. And he would say, no, really? How are you really doing? It was totally annoying. (laughs) People avoided him. But in a way, that's our problem and not his. Okay, maybe it's his too. That... That is not the way to win friends and influence people, perhaps. But all of us do actually need someone who can stop us when we say, I'm fine. It's all good, right? We use that expression, it's all good. No, it's not. The church has to be a community where we can stop each other, where we have relationships, where we can say to someone, I know you're not fine. Tell me where we can pray with them. Most people are just trying to be polite. They don't want to hear about your problems. They don't want to know how you're doing. We we recognize that. But God does. And that's why we have these psalms of lament, so many of them. It's God's invitation to turn to him when maybe we don't have anyone who we feel we can tell about how we're doing at a deeper level. In the next section of the psalm, David does not hold back as he describes his problem. In verses 3 to 6, we learn that he faced two major challenges. First of all, his enemies were pursuing him, and second of all, he was isolated. King Saul wanted to kill David, and he sent his soldiers to hunt him down. They have hidden a snare for me, he says. You can read all about this in 1 Samuel. David was in a cave as he wrote these words. Now, most of us don't have enemies the way he describes them here. Enemies who are coming after us with weapons to kill us. For us, our enemies are more likely to be emotions or even a lack of emotion. Maybe it's anxiety or depression or pride. After all, we say you are your own worst enemy, right? And that's so true. 
We also face conflict in the relationships in our lives, in our families. Right now, I'm willing to bet you could think of a particular person who is a source of trouble for you, who has hurt you, who is holding you back, maybe even with the best of intentions, but maybe not. And then there's the enemy of our souls. We know that God loves us so deeply, but we have an enemy as well. The devil whispers his lies to us. That God is not good, that God is not real, that we are not loved, that we are even unlovable, that no one will ever love us, and that we deserve to be alone. The devil whispers condemnation to us that we deserve everything bad that has happened to us. Either way, the trouble of various kinds in our lives leads to isolation. No one at my right hand, writes the psalmist. No one's concerned for me. No friend to offer refuge. No one cares for me. God designed us for healthy relationships. God designed us for community in which we can be loved and flourish. When we feel this sense of abandonment, we are farthest from what God wants for us. And yet, the strange thing is that the cave can teach us about that like nothing else. We would prefer to live in the bright sunshine of God's blessings, right? But there are times when we get the cave instead. Joseph had a prison Moses had the desert, Jeremiah had a pit, Daniel had a den, Paul was forever ending up in jail. What does it all mean? Well, the cave is a place of darkness and death. It's also the place where you die to yourself. The cave humbles us so that we can sing those words we sang earlier, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And mean it. It's not about me, not I, but it's about Christ. So the cave is a place of separation also. Not only does God show you who you really are in the cave, he also strips you of every misplaced dependency. God put David in that cave to separate him from everything he had once depended on so that all that would be left for him was God himself. You can imagine how frustrating that was for David. He was God's anointed one. He was chosen to be king. How had it come to this? I think many of us can relate to that kind of disappointment. When we have our experience of being in the cave, we feel like God's plan for us maybe isn't what we thought. Maybe God can't be trusted. But then often, as we wait for God, as we wait on God, it turns out that those times in our lives are some of the most fruitful. And it's right into that moment of emptiness and despair that God shows up at the end of the psalm. The final section of Psalm 142 is the deliverance. It comes through a request and a final expression of trust. Already back in verse 3, there was the recognition the psalmist writes, you watch over my way. But the real turning point comes in verse 5, 
where he says, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. To me, that feels a bit forced. It's like he's saying something he's learned by heart. The Psalms have that effect for us. Some of us know Psalms off by heart. And so we repeat them. We repeat these words that we know in a way we know are true. But words that we may become to doubt. Here, when David says, you are my refuge, having just said, I have no refuge, you are my portion. It may be that it's just a small portion. It's just a glimpse of light through his darkness. But he knows he has to follow it. He knows that it leads to life and not to death. And then he makes a request. He requests that God would come and rescue him and free him. He's still in this desperate need, but he wants out. And here we see three things that he hasn't lost sight of. For all, he's in this place of suffering. First of all, God is real. God is his refuge. Other people are not. They've all abandoned him, but God is with him. And then he sees, he recognizes the truth about himself. That he's weak, that he's trapped in a kind of a prison. He can't get out on his own. He needs help. And he acknowledges that. And then finally he expresses this trust. That he isn't alone, that he won't always be alone. That the righteous will gather around him, he says. He gives us this picture of him coming into a crowd. A crowd of friends, a crowd of people who will bear him up, who will walk with him. Good people. People gathered by God himself. When we're honest, I think we can relate to that feeling of being in a prison. I don't know what your prison is today. Maybe it's brokenness in your family, in your marriage, conflict with a good friend. Maybe it's the prison of compulsive behavior around alcohol or food or sex. Some of us are trapped in a cycle of bitterness due to some hurt we've experienced in the past or a disappointment that we can't let go of and we're angry with God. Or it may be that you're imprisoned by your pride, that you refuse to admit that you're wrong, that you are in fact weak, that you can't make it on your own. You don't let people get close. Maybe you don't even know how to. And you may feel completely alone in what you're going through right now. And maybe you've even gotten used to that. But God is listening. Would you take that risk of praying to him, addressing him, laying out your problem, and waiting for his deliverance? He will lead you out of these low expectations you have, out of the resignation you feel, into a new freedom. And then he's going to do something, or maybe as part of that leading you out of that place, he's going to do something that will surprise you. He's going to ask you to help someone. I remember at a time in my life when I was something like what David was going through here, at a low point, my mother, who is a really nurturing, wonderful lady, she's fine, let me say that, my mom, she got kind of angry with me on the phone. I remember it still vividly. She said to me, you need to get out of that room in that basement apartment 
you need to get out and you need to help someone. You need to serve someone. You need to do something for someone else. I thought she was crazy because I didn't feel like I wanted to see anyone or be with anyone. But she was so right. She basically said, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Get out of your cave of self-preoccupation and you might find that the righteous gather around you. She gave me that kick that I needed in my backside and it was good. If you're in the darkness right now, maybe you can see this psalm as God's invitation to follow the light and to follow Jesus by no matter what is holding you back, reaching out to someone. God gives us the experience of of suffering we have, partly so that we can relate to the trouble other people are going through and help them pull out of their despair. That is where the Holy Spirit comes alongside us with his healing for us and for the person that we're with. And if you're not in a place of lament today, then I'd say you're even better equipped to be the peace of Christ, to be the wholeness, the fullness, the health to those who find themselves and their lives in pieces right now. We talk about being the missional church a lot, right? We talk about evangelism, about sharing the love of God with people in our neighborhoods where we live, in our workplaces. The best possible way to share God's love with someone is to come alongside them when they're feeling alone and unloved, when they're in trouble. It won't be easy, but the Holy Spirit promises to give you the words to say to equip you for that journey. As Christians, we should be experts in lament, not in health, wealth, and prosperity. If we follow Jesus, we have to take his last words from the cross seriously. In Matthew 27, Jesus uses a line from another psalm of lament, Psalm 22. And he says, as he is dying... He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the kind of love that Jesus has for us. He entered into our suffering. He became God forsaken, abandoned. He took on the sin of the world so that you and I could receive his forgiveness. He went into the ultimate cave, the cave of death, the cave of separation from his father. And on the third day, he rose again. Jesus became a man of sorrows to lead you through your sorrow into the hope of the resurrection so that you could believe today that you can pass from lament into thanksgiving. And I love the way this psalm ends saying that all this lament, all this sorrow, all this sadness in our lives and in the world will lead into the praise of God. And then the righteous will gather around you because of God's goodness to you. Nobody knows the trouble you've seen. Nobody knows your sorrow except for Jesus. And he is waiting for you, waiting for you to turn to him. He is with you always. Do you believe it? Let's pray. 
Dear God, we thank you that even though you look on the world and see the ways that we have turned from you and the ways that we hurt one another, the ways that we have not listened, not been faithful, even though you see into our hearts and you see the darkness, yet still you come after us every single time. Lord, as we saw last week, we are made in your image. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would open each one of us more and more to the point where we can be honest with you, where we can lament with you and to you, where we don't pass quickly over the bad stuff as we pray and as we are the church together, but that we would be prepared to take the time to listen to each other, to listen to you, to let down our defenses, to become vulnerable with each other, and most of all, with you. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Amen.